0: Pod Save the World is brought to you by Tommy John. Okay, everyone listening, close your eyes. No, thank you. Even you guys driving, just kidding. Imagine you're hosting a podcast, a couple of buds in your current underwear. (laughs) Oh boy. (laughs) Would you be proud of your underwear choice today if they saw it? Proud of a lot of life choices. I know I would because I'm wearing Tommy John. What about you, listener? The answer is no. Then it's time to try Tommy John, the revolutionary clothing brand. It's redefining comfort. Men and women, I'm my proud mom, of my underwear. My mom and my father and mother in law listen to this show. <laughs> Tommy John obsesses about every little detail and stitch by using fabrics that perform like nothing you've ever worn before. Tommy John's men's and women's underwear supports a no wedgie guarantee. It's comfortable, there's stay put waistbands and a range of fabrics that are luxuriously soft, feather light, moisture wicking, breathable, and designed to move with you, not against you. Don't you don't want your underwear moving against you. Nope. Tommy John is so confident in their underwear that if you don't love your first pair, you can get a full refund with their best pair you'll ever wear, or it's free guarantee. That includes our new life-changing women's underwear, now fully back in stock. Before you spend another dime on cheap heat-trapping multi-pack <laughs> underwear, remember there's a better way to take care of your goods. Tommy John, no adjustment needed. Go to TommyJohn.com/world right now to save 20% on your first order. That's TommyJohn.com/world. For 20% off, tommyjohn.com slash world. We'll go back and forth,
1: and then we fell in love, okay? No, really. He wrote me beautiful letters, and they're great letters. We fell in love.
0: Welcome back to Pod Save the World. That was President Trump talking about his unexpected love affair with Kim Jong-un at a rally in West Virginia we will talk about that and more in today's Pod Save the World with one of my favorite reporters and journalists and opinion writers on planet, David Ignatius of The Washington Post. Uh, you guys have heard David before. He writes amazing spy novels. He writes brilliant columns. You should check out his stuff. I pay for The Washington Post just to get his stuff. So we talked about some interesting announcements about Iran's nuclear program that happened at the UN General Assembly this week. We talked about North Korea and what David thinks might be the outlines of an actual deal, which could be hopeful. You know, it's a positive sign. So trying to give Trump credit where credit is due, if it is due. So dig into that. We talk about the people literally laughing at Trump's UN General Assembly speech. And then we spend a good amount of time on China and how dangerous or not this ongoing trade war and war of words is. It's a great episode. He's a hell of a journalist. And I think you guys will enjoy it. So here's David Ignatius. David Ignatius, thank you for jumping on the line. I was hoping we could start with last week's UN General Assembly because... While it was largely wiped out of the headlines by the Kavanaugh news and by, you know, will he, won't he debates about Trump firing Rod Rosenstein, there were some interesting things that went on up in New York that I would like to touch on. So the first was the Israeli prime minister, uh, Bibi Netanyahu, revealed what he called a secret atomic warehouse in Tehran that he said Iran used to store equipment and material for its nuclear weapons program. That announcement comes not long after the Mossad, who is the Israeli intelligence services smuggled, you know, I think 100,000 nuclear related documents out of a different Iranian facility back in February. How big of a deal was this announcement from Netanyahu at the General Assembly?
1: I didn't think it broke all that much new ground. You have to wonder about Iranian security in Tehran. The Israelis <laughs> seem to be able to make off with, uh, you know, documents, equipment, yeah, seriously. Uh, everything in sight. The basic point that Netanyahu has tried to make that the Iranians were seeking to build a nuclear weapon, that's now well established. Um, It it goes to the question of the credibility of Iranian uh, promises in the JCPOA, the nuclear deal that they're going to stop those activities. But I didn't didn't see a sort of fundamental um,
0: step change in our perceptions of what Iran Mm -hmm. was doing. The Iranian foreign minister, Javad Zarif, called Netanyahu's presentation, quote, an arts and craft show by a country that he says needs to come clean about its own nuclear program. Does he have a point? Is there a bit of hypocrisy there? How should we view this response?
1: Well, Israel's uh, nuclear weapons capability, on the one hand, is something that Israel has wanted the world to know about but has always wanted to f- deny formally. They've liked to have it in this ambiguous state, but there have been many histories written about how Israel uh, built nuclear weapons uh, at Dimona many years ago and is, has its own nuclear arsenal. So I, I, I think it upsets the Iranians, but this is something that the Middle East has lived with Mm -hmm. uh, now for decades. Um, I I mean, I I just don't think there's any way in the world that Iranian protests about this are going to change Israel's commitment to
0: wanting and and feeling it needs to have a nuclear deterrent. Yeah. Well, here's to hoping the Iranians never get a nuclear weapon. Also at the UN, uh, Trump's National Security Advisor, John Bolton, gave this blistering speech warning Iran that there will be hell to pay if they cross us. But it was interesting to me that at the same time, there were all these rumors about maybe A possible meeting between trump and the iranian president mr rouhani it seemed like reading between the lines that trump's team was genuinely nervous that he might try to meet with rouhani trump ultimately knocked down those rumors by tweets he said i have no plans to meet with rouhani maybe someday in the future i am sure he's an absolutely lovely man was the end of the tweet what did you make of all that are are, are trump and his team on the same page when it comes to iran
1: So I don't think that Trump and John Bolton are. Pompeo is a bit of a mystery, the secretary of state. But you'd have to say Trump uh, dropped a hanky, as it were, uh, last week in New York in comments, tweets, and what I'm told he said privately to other leaders. He now has a model in his mind uh, from North Korea that if he talks really tough, uh, makes a credible threat to use military force. Puts on uh, tough economic sanctions. That, in the end, uh, the other side will uh, be prepared to come into negotiations that they had claimed earlier they wouldn't, and that he'll be able to get the great deal that eluded his, his predecessors. He he clearly believes that's what's happened hmm. with North Korea, and I think looking at him, he's trying now to execute the same thing with Iran. I'm, I'm told that. What he says to diplomats from other key countries is uh, there'll be a time for negotiations with the Iranians. They'll come around. They have no choice, but not yet. They need to feel the squeeze more. So we're going to have, starting in November, uh, very uh, tight, tough sanctions. The The effort is, is going to be to cut Iran essentially off from the international banking system by withdrawing the swift payments exchange that allows Iranian banks to to fund transactions. That, that really is going to hurt. Yeah. And I'm told by Europeans that there's not likely to be any way to, to stop that. So we're, we are going to be looking, starting in, in November, at a much tighter squeeze in Iran. And it's, it's clear from Trump's comments, he thinks, sooner rather than later, that that will bring them back to the table.
0: I, I have to say, I kind of like hearing that. I, I love the thought of Trump being enamored with negotiations, because it feels like otherwise there would be an awful lot of momentum towards a regime change policy with respect to Iran.
1: So the problem with this you know, little mechanism that Trump has created is that it, it essentially is going to create havoc in the Iranian economy. Mm-hmm. The idea is to create severe pressure that forces the regime to negotiate with a country that it now thoroughly mistrusts after the withdrawal from the JCPOA. It's, I think, as likely that the result of this policy will be to create a failed state in Iran you know, a crumbling economy, an angry uh, public, a regime struggling to to hold on that becomes more hardline, not not more not more liberal. Uh, and you know, you have to ask: Given all we've been through the last fifteen years, is another failed state in the Middle East? Uh, really something that's in the, in the U.S. national interest. Maybe it will turn out the, the way Trump wants, that they'll, that they'll feel the pressure, they'll feel the squeeze and they'll say, okay, mm-hmm. you know, let's start a negotiation. We'll put on the table things we haven't been prepared to before. To be honest, that would be a good outcome. Who wouldn't be, who wouldn't be happy to see that? But it's a course that has all sorts of risks and it assumes that Ayatollah Khamenei, who, who just you know, hates the idea of compromising with America, is going to be prepared to, to compromise with Donald Trump because the pressure is so tough.
0: Like the Iranian economy, my hope is now crushed. But you're right. I mean, If you read on recent history is that uh, regime change always leads to a good outcome, I think you're reading the wrong books. It's <laughs> another collapsing regime in the Middle East. Mm, hard Not to great. see that as really being, <laughs> Not being great. Honest. You recently wrote a great piece about North Korea and how we might actually be starting to see a real deal take shape. It could include North Korea dismantling some test sites, its main nuclear weapons facility in Yongbyon, all of that would be conditioned on the U.S. taking some sort of reciprocal action, maybe getting U.S. service members out of South Korea over some time frame. I've been pretty skeptical about the Singapore summit actually accomplishing anything. Uh, And as recently as August, John Bolton was saying that North Korea had not taken any necessary steps to denuclearize. But are you starting to see more hopeful signs? So in the immediate aftermath
1: of, of the Singapore summit, there was absolutely nothing specific. And the North Koreans uh, just kind of played uh, uh, rope-a-dope. And uh, Trump, in his enthusiasm post-summit blush, kept saying nice things. And I think people uh, rightly said, wait a minute, there's, there's nothing here in terms of substance. Then the administration began to get a little tougher. And a trip that Secretary of State Pompeo was going to make to Pyongyang was canceled. I'm sure that private messages were passed that were more serious and over time it appears the North Koreans began to say, okay, yes, We will allow international inspectors to come in and verify that we have destroyed one of our missile test sites. They hadn't done that before. They don't Mm -hmm. like inspectors. Then they uh, said we would be prepared if there were reciprocal U.S. gestures to destroy their major uh, nuclear facility at Mm -hmm. Yongbyon that you mentioned a moment ago. That was also interesting. What reciprocal concessions are they looking for? it appears that what they want is a declaration of the, the end of the state of war between the U.S. and North Korea, North mm-hmm. South Korea, et cetera. Uh, that is the track that President Moon of South Korea has been pursuing in his own bilateral diplomacy with Kim Jong-un, including this recent summit that, that they had. And my sense is that the U.S., the key negotiator is Pompeo, the Secretary of State, has been prepared to go along with that. The precise shape of the way the U.S. is going is to phrase this, you know, in effect, uh, confidence building declaration is still isn't clear. But I think they're ready to offer something and that's probably going to be enough to move the ball far enough down the road that
0: when there's another uh, Trump-Kim summit, there'll be something for them to sign. Well... The good news is that Trump recently told us that he and Kim Jong Un had fallen in love. After wasn't Kim that wrote great? Him, he wrote him beautiful letters. That was so um, touching. I mean, it's one of those funny moments where if a Democrat said that uh, the Republican Party would spontaneously combust, impeach, and invoke the Twenty Fifth Amendment, but well, it's, we, it's just it's just goofy. But you know, <laughs> in, a, in a
1: weird way, you have the, the feeling that this president. It falls in love with his own diplomacy. I mean, in a sense, it's you know, it's a narcissistic love. He loves the fact that he's making this deal with Kim Jong Un. But it was a it was a bizarre comment. Totally the Thing bizarre. about Trump and North Korea is he he seems to keep falling uphill. You know, he does he does and says things that you think, "Oh, that, that's the end of it," and then a couple months later, they're back on
0: track. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the Great Courses. Now more than ever, it's important to keep learning. And you can do that with The Great Courses Plus. A lot you can learn there. Yeah, not learning is lamer than learning. You should check out the course, John. It's called Thinking About Cybersecurity, From Cybercrime to Cyber Warfare." I feel like that will contribute to my sleeping problem. It will contribute to your sleeping problem, but it will help you understand the ways we're under attack and the ways we can defend ourselves and where the government is falling short. It's with a cybersecurity expert named Paul Rosenzweig. Looks at big data, digital espionage, and the tools we can use to protect ourselves from cyber crime. It's very, very important. But that's just one of the thousands of lectures to enjoy with the Great Courses Plus. With the Great Courses Plus, you got unlimited access to learn from the world's top professors and experts. There are so many topics you can explore: history, politics, economics, psychology, or how to manage stress. John. Wow. It's a good one for you. Pick up a new language. Ooh. Take better photos. Oh, well, I could use all of these. I was digging deep on, on an Instagram the other day, and it's so funny when you go back to that original kind of year or two when everyone's just using, like, shitty filter, like sepia everything of, like, mundane objects. Yeah, now it's hashtag no filter all the way. Yeah, it's like, hey, well, look, there's eight shots of the same night playing Big Buck Hunter with a... <laughs> Some dumb filter. The early Instagram. Anyway, watch anytime, anywhere. Just stream the audio with the Great Courses Plus app. I know you're going to love the Great Courses Plus, and now is the perfect time to get started. For a limited time only, our listeners can get the first month free. But this offer is only available if you sign up now for their special URL. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash crookedworld. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash crookedworld. Pod Save the World is also brought to you by Movement Watches. You guys have heard me talk about movement. You've heard heard Lovett talk about movement and just completely get wrong who started the company. These are the young men who (laughs) just didn't quite finish college because they pursued entrepreneurial opportunities. They started a watch company, not a blade factory. They did not buy the German blade factory in the 30s. But both companies have grown like crazy and now movement has almost 2 million watches sold in 160 plus countries. They continue to revolutionize fashion on the belief that style shouldn't break the bank. I don't know if you've seen the site lately, John, but they've doubled the number of styles and they are still expanding. I go every hour. Movement has come far from being crowdfunded kids working out of a living room in the past year. They've not only introduced a ton of new watch collections for both men and women, and they've expanded to sunglasses and fashion forward bracelets. I have had multiple times in the past couple months where I've seen some of the cool watch, and I said, hey, I like your watch, and they said, thanks, movement. Also, sunglasses. I people love their movement sunglasses. Yeah, yeah, they do, they do. Movement watches are all about looking good and keeping it simple. They don't tell you how many steps you've taken or blow up your wrist. With text messages, it tells time, and it looks good doing it. They start at 95 bucks at a department store. That's like or $500. So you're getting a great deal. They figured out by selling online, they can cut out the middleman, the retail markup and provide the best possible price, design quality, quality construction, and styled minimalism. Get 15% off today with free shipping and free returns by going to MVMT.com slash crooked. That's MVMT.com slash crooked. Join the movement. You mentioned South Korean president Moon earlier. I mean, If we're really scoring this thing, how much credit do you think President Moon deserves for the ongoing efforts to, to get to a peace process?
1: So I think that uh, in my book, Trump deserves credit for seizing the opportunities that have arisen. Mm-hmm. I, I'm for diplomacy on North Korea, and I, I think falling the president for, for agreeing to the Singapore summit and other, other steps is a mistake. But the people who have been moving the ball here really are the North and South Korean leaders, Kim and Moon. Kim, at the end of last year, made very clear in some speeches and government statements that he felt they had successfully completed their nuclear program. They had tested weapons and the missiles to deliver them and they were now going to pivot towards an economic program that in a sense leverages their nuclear capability. Moon initiated his own fascinating bilateral diplomacy uh, centered around the Olympics, uh, inviting North Korea to to be part of this Winter Olympic event show and it ended up working out. And I felt in that period the U.S. was sort of dragged along with North-South Korean diplomacy that initially it wasn't all that comfortable with. Remember when Mm -hmm. uh, Vice President Pence went to the Olympics and he seemed really, really uncomfortable – but in the end, that was the driver. And when the proposal for a, for a summit between Kim and and Trump was presented to the president, he said, "Yep. Well, I, you know, the more I look into this, I keep hearing that Trump has been sending messages pretty much since the day he got into the Oval Office hmm. that he was ready for a summit meeting with, with Kim. Uh, that that he, you know, the, all that bluster talk." was was accompanied by private messages that he was prepared to sit down and meet with the North Korean leader. So I, I think um, this has been hatching a long time. But again, the decisive framers of these issues have been uh, the North and South Koreans, not the U.S. The U.S. has been a receiver. It's welcomed the diplomacy. It's now beginning to
0: frame what the agreement would actually look like. But it didn't initiate it. I hope sincerely that it works out in the end. And I, I do also give Trump credit for bucking conventional wisdom and being willing to take a chance on diplomacy.
1: This is a key pod save the world moment in which Tommy Vitor says something hey, good about Donald Trump's foreign policy.
0: You know, I do think if you if you ran back the tape eight years and asked Obama, like, what do you wish he'd done a couple more times? It, w- it would probably be, there's all every Situation Room meeting has 15 people telling you why you can't do something and just telling them to get out of your face and I'm going to do it anyway would have been a probably useful exercise every once in a while.
1: You know, I just would add one thing, Tommy, from last week. I think one of the more outrageous things that went all but unnoticed was when uh, Donald Trump said that if Barack Obama had had remained president, there would have been a nuclear war between the US and North Korea because Obama was on the the edge of pulling the trigger, I think he actually said. Mm -hmm. What Obama said to Trump, as we understand it, is this is a really serious problem. I've really struggled with this, and you're, it's going to be the most important foreign policy issue ahead for you. For Trump to translate that into the idea that, <laughs> that he saved America from the war that Barack Obama would have started was really, you know, even
0: even by Trump standards, pretty amazing. Yeah, man, you're right. That, I, I saw that. And I was like, come on, you're just lying. But another day, another press conference. That's right. That's right. 81 minutes. Uh, last question for you about the UN. Um, Trump gave this speech to the U.N. General Assembly that included a line about how he's accomplished more than any other administration in in history, history of our country. And the assembled diplomats literally laughed. And when asked about it later, he said, you know, they didn't laugh at me. They laughed with me. My question is, I mean, it was one of those moments where you just put your head in your hands. But. Do you think this reflected any sort of sincere expression of how countries may have changed their opinions about the U.S.? Or is it just a funny, maybe even silly moment with people not uh, used to his bluster? So as I've talked
1: to to foreign diplomats in the days since Trump was at the U.N., I keep hearing this the same thing, which is that... The world is really reckoning now with the reality that that Donald Trump is president and that he has changed some of the fundamentals of American foreign policy. I mean, I think the reason there was that, that awkward laughter at the president's boast was, in a sense, people know how much he's changed but to see it as as a positive accomplishment for the US that so many of our alliances are are now more ragged than they were, that we've withdrawn from so many global agreements that really most of the rest of the world supports, I I think that just made people laugh like, what are you talking about? But I think the problem for our country is that the rest of the world is now trying to figure out, Okay, we never thought this could happen but it's happened. And even if Trump is defeated, even if the midterm elections go for the Democrats, we have to now reckon with the possibility that it could, ha- it could happen again, mm-hmm. that America is a different place than what we thought. And that's what I see people struggling to deal with. Uh, I thought that was behind some of the of the, the tension that you saw last week in New York. Yeah.
0: Speaking of tension, we have a ongoing trade war and often war of words, with China. Uh, Over the weekend, the Chinese canceled a high-level security talks uh, dialogue that included Secretary Mattis, the Secretary of Defense. President Trump has recently accused them of meddling in our elections, and apparently Vice President Pence is going to outline more of the case for that argument in a speech coming soon. How bad do you think tensions are with China right now?
1: Pretty bad. I I think that Trump, as in most aspects of his foreign policy, wants to destabilize uh, his adversary, the Chinese, and he's succeeding. I think the Chinese are really flummoxed. This trade war, trade dispute, now increasingly trade war, has gone further than they ever thought it would. Uh, They kept thinking that that there'd be a kind of compromise point and they kept putting more on the table uh, and it hasn't been enough. I think the one um, point that reasonable people should agree on is that China's behavior in international trade has been a problem mm-hmm. for the United States and for all of its trading partners. I mean, every time I go to China, I hear stories from American and European companies that are that are operating there. who uh, – the, executives tell me, we are sick of having our intellectual property stolen, you know, basically being in their view mistreated in this market, not given fair access. So the idea that it's time to have uh, different rules that are a little fairer is correct. That's not just Trump saying, saying that but I think almost any Western business person who's, who's done business in China. It's probably better to try to redress the the terms of trade, the rules for this game now as opposed to 10 years from now when China will be even more powerful. So I think, again, reasonable people should say, okay, I think the question is how much crockery, I was going to say China, gets broken <laughs> along the way right. in, in doing that and what's the damage to the global economy, to living standards in China, in the US, around the world uh, in that in that process. And I think that's the delicate uh, issue. And um, you know, if, if Trump plays true to form, he'll do the same thing he did with Mexico and with Canada, which is he'll he'll take this as far as he thinks he reasonably can go, and then he'll cut a deal. Yeah. But you know, maybe not. Maybe maybe the Chinese won't won't give him that opportunity. That's the risk.
0: Right. I mean, and it's interesting because again, I mean, he just recently authorized another round of tariffs on like $200 billion worth of Chinese goods. And there are reportedly voices in the White House who think that the only way to really stop China from doing the bad things you just described is to really make them feel economic pain. But again, interestingly, when when this trade war was first suggested, we were all warned by the the same experts that it would be a cataclysmic event for the US economy, but the stock market is still through the roof. The economy's humming along. I mean. Is there a problem of crying wolf or, you know, is, are we just sort of on the precipice of something pretty bad here? Well, you know, it, it it could get much
1: worse. I think the first thing I'd say is that if you wanted to really go after China uh, and change the trading relationship, the stupidest thing you could have done to start with was to get rid of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, mm-hmm. which was the gathering of all the nations but China in a trading group that gave the U.S. strength uh, in dealing with the, with the China issue. I think that, you know, as I look back, was just such a such a fundamental mistake. She can make concessions, but he is now on such a pedestal that I think his maneuvering room is limited, much as Trump's is mm-hmm. And you know, uh, bad things happen when people back themselves into corners and keep you know kind of doubling down and all of a sudden there there isn't any room left to to compromise and then and then you get cracks in the economy i mean our stock market has done great but you know you could get a crack and then yeah. it, you know it, it could accelerate chinese uh, economy is a little more precarious than than we sometimes think there's so much debt overhanging the system so it, it's it, you know there's a fragility here that we forget about and when when uh, you know, Trump just keeps making an announcement, another set of tariffs, another set of tariffs. You forget that the underlying set of relationships, um, you know, can't that economies do suddenly uh, get hit with shocks, and we'll have we'll have quite catastrophic financial crises. We lived through one, 2008, 2009. We live with many in Asia. So let's just hope that we're not heading toward that. That we're instead heading toward a deal that will lead to better, fairer uh, rules for trade with China.
0: Pod Save the World is brought to you by Turner. John, this is the single most cryptic piece of ad copy I've ever gotten. I still don't really know what it's about, so I'm going to read it to you verbatim. Okay. The only way the president can save Washington, D.C. is to nuke it. What? No, not this president. If you think that doesn't make sense then you don't know President Phil Ken Seven. Oh. Now, the only way to free the president from himself, to save the country from annihilation, and to liberate the world from a power-hungry dictator, is to impeach President Phil Ken Sebbin. The man for this job is a Birdman. <laughs> You've been waiting for his return, and soon your dreams will come true. Harvey Birdman is back for a special case. For one half of one hour, you'll see what an American hero looks like. How about that teaser? People like the show. You can catch the show on Adult Swim. It's a half hour special on Sunday, October 14th at midnight. You mentioned the TPP Trans-Pacific Partnership. One of the things it would have done was update NAFTA. Trump actually announced a new version of NAFTA this week, the biggest piece of which uh, seems to be renaming it the USMCA. But there are meaningful changes. You He Uh, negotiated to increase the percentage of car and truck components that have to be manufactured in North America from about 62% to about 75% to qualify for no tariffs. Some see that to be a positive uh, for car manufacturers. It also has to pass through our Congress, Mexico's Congress, Canada's Congress. I mean, did you think that the announcement or the update uh, was meaningful? And and do we think it has a chance of getting approved?
1: Yes. I think it's modestly an improvement. It's like what uh, the Obama administration was was considering. It, it embraces the kinds of standards that were in the Trans-Pacific Partnership in the NAFTA, U.S.-Mexico, U.S.-Canada re- relationships. I think if it's true that a basic problem in our country is that the middle class hasn't sufficiently shared in the prosperity that the global economy has brought than a trade agreement that says that uh, wages for auto workers in the U.S., Canada, and Mexico have to be higher and that the percentage of the total car that's made in those three countries has to be greater. You know, hard to argue with that. It's good. Again, the, the question is how much did you have to break along the way to getting that good thing? You know, was the breakage uh, warranted because the the outcome will benefit enough American workers, and we'll just have to look more carefully. We should, so so few details. of This deal are really clear yet, but I wouldn't I wouldn't say that that it was a, a you know meaningless, simply a renaming of it. I, I think there was a little more in it than that.
0: Yeah, there's some interesting. I mean, I think you know maybe if you're an apple farmer or a dairy farmer, or you know certain unions seem to like it. But um, well,
1: thank goodness we've
0: dealt with those terrible Canadian dairy farmers. I was really <laughs> yeah. worried about that. I know, but you know it, it is interesting. to see you know someone who I think has defined a lot of his policies by tearing things up, shredding the Iran deal, uh, when they go and try to construct something or build something new, it's harder. It's interesting to see them bump up against that
1: reality. Yep. I agree. It's, but it's, it's good to see them build something as opposed, opposed to just tearing things down.
0: Yeah. Speaking of very difficult things to build, you, you also wrote a piece recently about... The depressing state of the Middle East peace process that was pegged off the 40th anniversary of the Camp David Accords and the 25th anniversary of the Oslo Accords. And I came away from reading your piece and looking at the state of the region and feeling like not only is the Middle East peace process dead, as at least in the form that we knew it, but it may be the case that U.S. influence in the region is permanently diminished. And, and that is not a criticism of the Trump administration. Barack Obama didn't get a Middle East peace deal by not even close, despite trying very hard. Uh, You know, it's it's accumulation of decades of failure. Am I too cynical? Because you quoted some people in the piece that have done this a lot longer than I've been alive that remained optimistic.
1: Well, I think um, optimism is is in my nature, probably yours, uh, most people's. We, We want there to be peace in the Middle East. We've wanted it. It turned out more than the parties themselves seem to want it in this piece i just reflected back over too many years of of covering the story of the israeli palestinian dispute i first started covering the middle east in 1980 and again and again as hard as the united states tried to bring peace what i, I said in this article was that peace just kept receding attitudes hardened i described individual uh, palestinians and israelis that i'd known you know who who had been eager for compromise, who, you know, who've you been the very soul of this peace process, over time becoming um, more and more just frustrated and alienated, that, that uh, willingness to compromise just beginning to slip away. There's not much land left in the West Bank. When I travel the West Bank looking for how you'd create a viable Palestinian state there, Man, I mean it's just – it's harder and harder. The settlements do make a difference just in terms of the physical area that's available. So I, I've ended up sadly feeling pretty pessimistic about this. I think as the Israelis live with uh, a one-state solution uh, and the dilemmas that that creates for Israel, I think maybe there will be a rebirth of interest in a, a two-state solution but I, I think for the next while, we're going to live with, with the reality that the peace process, as we've conceived it, is dead. Yeah.
0: Last question for you. Uh, over the weekend, Indonesia it dealt with a horrific earthquake and a tsunami. I mean, you're, you're seeing hundreds, if not thousands, dead. You know, normally, when something like this happens, the US ends up leading a coalition to respond. You know, We saw it in the Fukushima disaster in Japan. We saw it in haiti when there was a similar massive tsunami disaster all over the indian ocean president bush really pushed to get relief is there a similar effort underway or you know like are we just have we abandoned international relief support and efforts like we used to do
1: if there is such an effort it has not been um forcefully made visible to the america and the world you know, This is, I guess, part of the America First mindset um, that we'll worry about our own disasters and, and you worry about yours. I found myself thinking this week uh, we have signs of the, perhaps a new Ebola crisis uh, in Africa. And one of the things that President Obama got very little popular credit for was the way he mobilized American resources to deal with a really scary outbreak of mm-hmm. Ebola. During the second term of his presidency, and it takes that commitment. You it, you have to work to mobilize the resources of the U.S. government to uh, make a difference. Climate disasters, natural disasters in Indonesia, outbreaks of of d- disease in any part of the world end up affecting us. I mean, we that's one thing that I thought we'd learned during the Obama years. We seem to be forgetting it is one world, baby. Yeah. And uh, and you know, you may not think that it matters. But, you know, it's just sort of like the famous quote that's attributed to Trotsky. You may not be interested in the revolution, but the revolution is interested in you. <laughs> great you
0: quote. may not
1: be interested in the world's disasters, but they're interested in you and they're coming to you.
0: They are. Uh, and I, you need to mobilize for that. I think about that Ebola period of time all the time because it didn't just take the marshalling of resources, but it was a temperament issue. Because... Donald Trump was among the many voices saying, shut down the airport, stop all flights from Africa. You know, like we're not we shouldn't provide support for U.S. doctors who went over there and who are now sick. And all of those things while, you know, feeling, you know, maybe they made sense on paper, but all the experts were telling you, actually, that could make things worse and not better. And I just I truly fear what President Trump would do in the moment in an extreme disaster like that. I, I don't have a high confidence.
1: I sure that. President Obama, your former boss, gets dinged sometimes for retreating from the world, from weak leadership. If you want a model of what good, reassuring leadership is in crisis, Ebola is a perfect example. Yeah. I mean, you know, the United States' population was ready to panic. And if, if there hadn't been steady, clear explanation of what it was we were doing, how we were going to keep this contained, uh, you know, you you could have had um, the, the kind of hysteria that that then leads to a really severe public health crisis. Yeah. So, you know, man, let's not forget how that do it right, which in this case Obama did.
0: Yeah, agreed. David, thank you so much for your time. It is always so much fun for me getting to catch up with you because you know, write great opinions uh, that people should check out on the Washington Post website, but also uh, you're doing tons of reporting and talking to these foreign diplomats and actually helping us understand what's happening on the ground in these places. So thank you again.
1: Well, get back to D.C.,
0: I will. Tommy. We're sick of having you out in, the, <laughs> in L.A. It's really sunny here, though. It's nice. <laughs> all right. Thanks again. I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you again to David Ignatius, and thanks to all of you guys for listening. If you like the show, you know what to do. Share it with your friends. Review it in the iTunes store. More importantly, go to votesaveamerica.com. Register to vote. Make sure your friends are registered. These registration deadlines are coming up very very quickly and we need everybody to be ready to rock on election day so thanks guys talk to you next week